0: Hello everyone, welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Ben Sint, and I'm joined today by Alexis Clark. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they're relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today we'll be chatting with Dr. Bruce Gantz, head and neck surgery department and faculty of otolaryngology and neurosurgery here at the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. Dr. Gantz is recognized internationally as a leader of cochlear implant technology welcome to the
1: show, Dr. Gantz. So, well, thank you, Ben and Alexis. Thank you for having me on.
2: So before we get started, could you briefly explain what exactly otolaryngology is <laughs> and how did you in- initially get introduced to this specialty and what made you decide to pursue a career in it?
1: Okay. Well, otolaryngology head and neck surgery is ENT, ear, nose, and throat. And so We are a surgical subspecialty of, you know, surgery, and we are uh, actually, otolaryngology is very interesting in that we do our own medical and surgical management of patients because we don't have a medical component like, let's say, cardiology uh, feeding patients to uh, cardiac surgeons. And so, or internal medicine, sending patients to general surgeons. So we, uh, we take care of uh, a really broad patient population from infants and newborns to the elderly. And so it is a very rewarding specialty. It has to deal with the senses, hearing, balance, sense of smell, sense of taste, and, uh, and swallowing, and, and a, a lot of other kinds of things that are very important to the quality of life of patients. And so, it, it's a, it, it's, it's, it's very rewarding. So, how did I get interested in it? Well, when I was in undergraduate, I did a research project with um, a program in speech and hearing. I took that because I was sort of interested in it. I don't know why I had an interest, but I did. I got engaged in research in cleft palate and cleft lip, and then found out that uh, the way to go about that, at least at the university, was in uh, otolaryngology head-neck surgery because we cared for patients with cleft lip and cleft palate I migrated away from that and uh, because I became very interested in the ear, hearing, and balance and tumors of the skull base, and uh, did a, a residency here at the university after graduating from the university, and uh, then went on and did a fellowship in, in Zurich, Switzerland, Switzerland with an individual that was really innovative in, in skull base surgery. So that's how I got here.
0: Awesome. So uh, before we get like too deep into this, could you start off like what is a cochlear implant and like why are they so beneficial?
1: Okay. Well, let, let's talk. Can I talk a little bit about hearing loss in general? Okay. Yeah, of course. So we, we, we have uh, people that develop hearing loss from birth or congenital. We have progressive hearing loss and we have... People that have hearing loss due to parts of the ear that don't function very well, like the the eardrum or the middle ear bones. And we so we have either congenital or acquired. Most acquired hearing loss is genetic, meaning that it runs in families. And so people can be born with normal hearing and then over a period of 30 to 40 years gradually begin to lose. We know that hearing loss occurs in the high frequencies, usually as we age and causes people to have a a lot of word understanding problem. A bigger problem, a public health problem in Iowa is noise. And noise is regulated now in the factories, but it's not regulated on the farm. And so I have a lot of farmers and, and people that work on farms that come and have significant high-frequency hearing loss due to noise exposure. But you can have other diseases and disorders that, that cause hearing loss. And most of the time, when people start to recognize they don't hear as well, for the most part, it's, they, they think that things are muddled. And most of that is because they lose... High frequency hearing. And the high frequency hearing is where you hear the S's and the T's and the Z's and the D's. So all the consonants. And so when you don't have good high frequency hearing, you get confused and you start to withdraw. You don't, you, and and that's a big issue with people that are older people or people that work in noisy environments that they just. want to participate because they can't communicate very well so we try to manage hearing loss first with hearing aids and hearing aids are amplifiers like what you have in your ears and they turn up the volume but they don't clarify the speech so you know if you have high frequency hearing loss significant enough to not be able to hear on the telephone Then we start thinking about something that is more uh, advanced and that's a cochlear implant. And so what a cochlear implant does is it actually goes into the inner ear. It's a small little wire. It's about 0.4 millimeters in diameter and and up to about uh, uh, 0.8 millimeters in diameter. And it goes into the inner ear about anywhere from 20 to 30 millimeters. The inner ear is about 36 millimeters. It's coiled and it's like a piano. And so the, the hearing organ, the inner ear is actually a bandpass filter. So it separates different frequencies. When I'm speaking or you're speaking, it's complex frequencies. And so what it does is it goes through the inner ear And it separates the individual frequencies because each region of the cochlea has a certain dynamic that allows it to respond to a certain frequency, sends the information to the brain, the brain puts it together. So that's what we call neurosensory hearing loss. In the past, people called that nerve deafness. But it's really a a problem of loss of the sensory cells, which are the hair cells in the inner ear that respond to the acoustic wave that's set up and then stimulates the nerves. The other type of hearing loss is conductive, which is the eardrum, the ear canal, or the middle ear bones. Many many times we can try and repair conductive hearing losses where we can't treat neurosensory hearing losses other than with cochlear implants. So the cochlear implant goes in the inner ear, it has a microphone, that sends the information through the skin. And it's not a direct connect, but it is a radio frequency wave. It's picked up by a small little receiver that's in the uh, implanted under the skin. And then it has a chip, a microchip that actually separates the frequencies to the different electrodes. And so you can have 12 to 22 electrodes on these multi-channel cochlear implants. And it allows you to separate the frequency information. And it's really interesting that we have about 30,000 hair cells in the inner ear that actually do the work to separate the, the different frequencies. And you can actually have a 22 or a 14 or a 16-channel cochlear implant deliver the same kind of information, and the brain can respond to it. So it's really the brain's ability to make sense. It's like you learn, you know how to speak English. If you went to Russia, you'd have a hard time for a few months until you learned to speak Russian. And so the brain has that ability to be quite flexible and and understand words and listen to music.
2: That's wild. I I guess I did not realize everything that our ear is constantly doing. So through your perspective as an otolaryngologist, what are the major public health concerns that you're seeing now today?
1: Well, I, I think one of the things is noise, you know, noise in the environment and in, in regulation of noise in, in the farm population and the workers. We know that you can be in 80 decibels of noise or sound for eight hours very comfortably. Every 5 dB you increase that, you have to have the amount of time that you can be in the noise without it causing damage. And so that's why OSHA regulates uh, the environment in large plants, where there's noise and they require people to wear earmuffs or earplugs to protect them in, in noisy environments. And what the noise does, it actually destroys those hair cells that separate the various frequencies because they exhaust their energy. And if you look at at um, some animal experiments where you put loud noise in, in animals and you, these hair cells are sitting up there like this when they're yeah, in normal, and all of a sudden they just fall over and, and eventually die off because of they've expended all their energy and can't handle it. So noise is a big thing. The other thing that I think people are just recognizing, which is really important, is that hearing loss creates an issue for people to withdraw because they don't communicate very well. And and I will tell you during this COVID period, we've had more people come into us seeking cochlear implants because when you have a mask on and you're talking, you can't read lips and everybody reads lips. And even you too are reading lips, even though you've got normal hearing, hopefully you haven't listened to a a lot of loud music. But so when you have this hearing loss, you don't participate. And I have spouses that come with, their, with the patient and say they don't, they don't go to church anymore. They don't go to the social. They can't understand the minister. They can not participate afterwards. And so when you withdraw, we know that it impairs your cognition. And so people that have significant hearing loss that were born with hearing, Have a real problem with cognitive functioning, and so we we know that recently the Lancet, which is a journal out a medical journal published in Britain, did an evaluation of dementia and uh, and Alzheimer's combination, and they found that the one of the most significant factors that you could influence was your hearing. And so, about nine percent of the causes of dementia is related to hearing. And you might alter nine percent of the population if you spent, if you kept them hearing with hearing aids or with cochlear implants. So I think that's a huge public health issue that needs to be addressed in the future.
0: That's great. So you've completed that fellowship internationally. Back in the day, Um, you talked a lot about like OSHA and like farms in Iowa, is there any like global mindset that, you know, maybe people need to take focus on?
1: Well, I will tell you that in Europe, where I was in Zurich, most uh, most healthcare systems are public. There's not this public private kind of insurance as, as sophisticated it is in the United States. And they all pay for hearing aids and pay for cochlear implants. So they're much ahead of us in the United States in that regards. But, you know, this is a universal problem. In in developing countries, you know, that that are unregulated with noise exposure and in factories, people are suffering much more probably than in the United States. It was interesting that when I was in Europe, one of the things that I, I was able to do during that year of fellowship was travel to um, many countries and actually look at what was going on. This was during the evolution of cochlear implants. I went to uh, France and to, to Paris and, and they were developing a cochlear implant. There was one that was being developed in Vienna. There was one that was being developed in Germany and one in England. And so I was able to travel to these clinics, learn a lot about the different developments. And actually, at that time, the FDA was not did not control cochlear implants. I, I brought four cochlear implants home in my suitcase and was able to sterilize them and put them in patients because they were more advanced than what we had here in the United States. So... Yeah, and, and then I, I was able to go to Australia. Someone came to our clinic and asked us if we were interested in learning about a new implant from Australia. And this was in 1983. And I went to Australia and we brought back the what's now the Cochlear Corporation Nucleus Cochlear Implant, which is the, has the greatest number of uh, implant T's in the world. But we were the first center to implant that device outside of Melbourne, Australia. They had done about 15 patients when we went there in in 1983. And we started implanting here that device in May of
2: 1983. So thinking back to when you traveled back to the United States with this contraption that had not been yet used in the U.S., how did you face those skeptics
1: oh well that's that's a whole different ball game because you know cochlear implants initially had a had a pretty rough start and uh, first of all scientists back in the late 60s said this couldn't work and bill house was a, a visionary and a neurotologist in los angeles and he developed the first single channel cochlear implant. And that was actually implanted in a patient that was successful and then went on to uh, commercialize it. But at, at that time, you know, the scientists said it wouldn't work because it was single channel and actually the single channel devices that went in really didn't improve word understanding. They, they helped you with lip reading, but not clarification of words. The multi-channel systems where they had, you know, eight to 22 channels now, separated the information and enabled the brain to really use it. So when we started doing this, the deaf population and deaf culture was adamantly opposed to us intervening because we were really changing their their whole culture. And you have to understand that most children are born to hearing families. 90% of deaf children are born in hearing families. And so most parents wanted to do something else other than signing for their children. And you have to realize that signing has a real limitation in language development and reading. The American Sign Language has an alphabet that is directed at concepts rather than the English alphabet, the association of sign language and reading was really far apart. And the average deaf person that's an adult, that only about, I think it's less than 15% have a fourth grade reading level because of the fact that the sign language does not translate to words on the page. And so there's a real dissociation uh, between American Sign Language and and reading. So, you know, people understood that. And when we started implanting uh, children in the 1980s, these children started learning language and speaking like you and I do. It was amazing. We were the first center to actually implant a multi-channel device in a congenitally deaf child in 1987 in the United States. And it may be the first one that was congenitally deaf in the world. He went on and graduated from the University of Iowa. And he is an, an engineer. And he also played in the Hawkeye Marching Band, which was really amazing to us because the electrical processing doesn't do as well with music as it does, especially melody, as it does with with words, we had had the deaf culture. That eventually, that has not been a problem. I went to a meeting one time in Paris, where a bunch of uh, deaf culture people came in and started blowing whistles. They couldn't hear it, but they disrupted our meeting because they just kept blowing whistles, and then they had to get the police to take them out of, of the meeting. So that's how I think frustrated the deaf culture was with our intervention that was going to disrupt their population of people. And that has happened.
0: So in this past year, you actually performed one of the world's first robot-assisted electrode implant of the cochlear implant into a patient. So having said that, how did we get there? What challenges did we face? What does it look like?
1: Well, so let me step back a little bit and explain why we need to be as gentle as possible in the inner ear. So the inner ear has a thin lining called an endosteum on the inside, and it has a periosteum on the outside. And the endosteum is very reactive to injury. And the reason is, is that in the animal world, if the animal gets an ear infection, it can go to a meningitis and kill the animal very quickly. So as we've evolved, if there is an infection in the inner ear, the inner ear responds very rapidly fibrosis and closes itself off from the brain because there is connection between the brain and the ear. So because we, we have also pioneered a concept of the hybrid hearing. So when we started implanting cochlear implants, we implanted them in patients that were so profoundly deaf, they couldn't hear themselves speak. And as we've learned more and more, we know that we can put them in patients that have some residual hearing in the low frequencies and they perform better. And in fact, they do much, much better in noise. Um, so, a, a standard cochlear implant is a little bit like a hearing aid. When you get in noise, it really drowns it out. If you have some low frequency hearing left, you can separate the vocal cords moving back and forth. It's called the fundamental frequency from the ambient noise, and it helps you understand speech. So when we're putting the electrodes in, we found that you couldn't go very far in because you can, as the ear turns, the electrode sort of rubs up against the louder outer wall and can injure that endosteum. And when that happens, we have some fibrosis and we lose some of that residual hearing. So uh, Marlon Hansen and Chris Coffin, Chris was a resident with us, Marlon was a faculty member with us, and um, we, they started developing a system that could put the electrode in the inner ear more carefully than the hand can, because it's very difficult to control the hand and slide this little electrode, even though we think we're doing it very cautiously, the forces that we're generating and, you know, stopping and starting can injure that inner ear. So this device now can put in the device as slowly as one tenth of a millimeter per second. And you can hardly see it move. And when they did experiments that they found in animals that when they put the electrode in very slowly, you reduce the forces on the lateral wall and reduce the injury. And so that's the whole reason for the for the robot <clears throat> is to help us put these devices in patients that have preserved residual hearing. And also for people that are not very facile and uh, do a lot of implants like we do, it helps them steady and, and make the implantation to preserve some structure in the inner ear better. So that's the whole point of it. And this is a disposable robot. And we've now got FDA approval, which is really important that we went through this whole process. We created a company in at the university, which is called IOTA Motion. It's a spin-off company. And it helps, if it's successful, it will help fund the research in the future and will help the department and the and the, and the researchers that developed it.
2: So transitioning now to more of a public health mindset, as those students that are listening to the podcast enter the workforce, do you have any advice for them to help the rising concern of hearing loss among the different communities?
1: Yes. I I think they just need to be aware of it. And, And I think the government is going to be more aware of it. You know, Hearing aids are, uh, are very expensive for many individuals. Congress just passed a, a law in the last few years to allow over-the-counter selling of hearing aids, which will re- dramatically reduce the cost. So a couple of hearing aids are between four and seven thousand dollars for two. That's a lot of money for people. And if you could get them a lot cheaper for a few hundred and make certain that we can can program them very easily remotely, uh, even using your phone. And so uh, as those kinds of technologies become available, we'll be able to reach more people with hearing loss. I think as people that are interested in public health, this is a huge public health problem. Uh, It's not a life or death problem, but it's a huge everyday satisfier. And I, I think just being aware with it of what, you know, uh, what hearing loss can eventually lead to, I think it's really important that we bring it out into the public and make, make them aware.
0: So throughout your career, what's one thing you thought you really knew, but maybe later on figured out you were wrong?
1: <laughs> there are too many, you know, I, I, I saw that question. I said, man, man. I don't know if I can answer that. I don't, there's nothing that has stuck out that I, that, that, you know, there's so many things that happen on a daily basis that I thought I knew. And then I had to go to the internet to find out if I really know it. <laughs> and as we get older, you need more of that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I think it's that so many times, you know, you're going through life and you go through academia and all of this training and you think you're ready. And then you realize you're ready in some ways, but you know, you're always learning in others.
1: Well, I, I think the most important thing is that you don't be too close-minded about, them, minded, minded about things and really try to be inclusive and not be exclusive. And uh, team players, I mean, we do better when we are in teams rather than individuals making decisions sometimes. Uh, sometimes that can get hard too, but... Uh, you know, I, I, I think you need to keep your options open. You know, our cochlear implant research that we've been doing here for 36 years, we've been funding by, funded by the NIH. This is a whole team of people, including one of your own from the College of Public Health. And uh, we have a statistician that has worked with us for a number of years. And he's on our grant all the t- time, telling us what's right and what's wrong and what we can do and what how many patients we need uh, to answer this question or that question. So it is a multidisciplinary. We have somebody from uh, the School of Music, somebody from uh, psychology in uh, the liberal arts. We have somebody, a neurologist working with us from Newcastle, England, that we Zoom every, every other week with or weekly in, in his team uh, to keep engaged in, in the research. So it's it's uh, you. You have to keep your mind open and uh, always be uh, appreciative of others and what their thoughts are.
2: Absolutely. Well, I think that is a great place to to close off. Dr. Gans, thank you so much for coming on from the front row. We really enjoyed having you, and I learned a lot. And I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Alexis and Ben. Thank you for doing this, and it's a real public service in the College of Public Health.
2: That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. Gantz for coming on with us today. This episode was co-hosted and written by Ben Sint and Alexis Clark, edited and produced by Alexis Clark. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Stay happy, stay healthy, and keep learning.